listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel, and this is a podcast where we talk about policy issues affecting us as Australians. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that is the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. Fabrizio Carmignani is Dean and Professor of Economics at the Griffith Business School. His research and expertise covers the broad field of applied macroeconomics and applied econometrics. He's worked for the UN in various roles and is a regular contributor to various media outlets where he writes and speaks about fiscal and monetary policy issues in Australia and overseas. Today, with Fabrizio's expertise, we'll be getting into the nitty-gritty of the 2022-23 federal budget and what various inclusions mean for everyday Australians. Fabrizio, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Now, just give us your overall read of the budget. Takeaways, surprises, or as you expected? Um, I wouldn't be talking about surprises as such, in the sense that, you know, this is a a pre-electoral budget. And and it's not just in Australia, but we observe a pattern a little bit everywhere around the world. When an election is forthcoming, uh, the budget tends to have, you know, quite a bit of expenditure spread across different areas, different constituencies, different sectors. Um, and I believe that this budget is aligned with that type of pattern. Um, more than surprises, therefore, I would talk about um, a couple of missing opportunities. There is a lot in this budget, and I believe that we will discuss about what there is in the budget, but I would like to point out from the beginning what, in my view, there isn't in the budget. Now, we often talk about what we have, but you know it's important to point out what we don't have and what we should have had. And, and to me, there are two things that are missing in this budget. <clears throat> the first one is uh, a lot more about sustainability, and the second one is a lot more about supporting innovation. So sustainability and innovation are the two things that I believe are crucially missing here. And the problem is that sustainability and innovation are the two drivers of our long-term prosperity uh, and welfare as a community. So overall, I would say that this is a budget that has a clear short-term focus. Again, not uncommon, but, you know, that's a fact. And in a sense, it misses the opportunity to look at the long-term prosperity of, uh, of the Australian community. Yeah, I want to flesh that out as we talk, but uh, since you've brought out what is there and you say that there aren't, what isn't there and you say that there aren't any real surprises, are there though any elements of the budget that aren't particularly obvious at first glance that once you've drilled into it, you've thought, oh, it's interesting that that's in there? Well, there are a few things that are interesting in there. Um, uh, I think that there are some measures that do reflect the current concern around the cost of living. So there is been obviously in, in the in the public policy debate in the media uh, in the profession a concern about the increasing prices, increasing fuel prices in particular. Uh, inflation is going up after years and years of inflation that was very low by all standards. We now have I wouldn't call it a spike in inflation, but certainly we have inflation that is you know uh, increasing. And uh, and it's interesting to see how there is some sort of response to to this uh, um, concern. Now the question is to what extent uh, this is a 
a medium-term concern or, again, uh, more of an emotional response to a contingent situation. If, if we look at, for instance, at the provisions in the budget on uh, fuel taxes, the fuel excise, this is obviously a response to, to, to a concern that has been expressed by citizens, by the public uh, around fuel prices. It does make sense to a certain point, but to me, uh, the important issue there is that uh, we should remember that what we are observing in terms of, of inflation is probably due to more contingent factors than structural factors. And, and therefore, we, we should wonder whether the response to inflation should come from the fiscal policy side or the monetary policy side, that is, from the government or from the Reserve Bank of Australia. So it's interesting to see that there are these, these type of measures. The other thing that I find interesting uh, I personally find it interesting, I don't know if, if, if someone else does, is that <laughs> once again, um, as always, and it's been a pattern for years now, um, when it comes to uh, uh, investment, everything seems to be going into physical infrastructure, um, you know, regional or, or metropolitan, in this case, more regional than metropolitan. It goes into physical infrastructure. And... and um, and I've always wondered if there is any uh, actual, again, long-term analysis of, of the impact of how this physical infrastructure is going to promote the future sustainable growth of the economy. Sometimes I would have liked to see a bit more investment in social infrastructure. Uh, and, uh, and again, uh, maybe here we have another missing opportunity. Yes, we've talked quite a bit on this podcast about soft versus hard infrastructure and what's actually driving our economy. It's a great point when you consider the industries or the workforces that kept our economy afloat during the pandemic. Now, let's look at those cost of living questions. There were a series of one-off payments um, for people of particular income levels, as well as the cut to fuel excise. But of course, they're time limited and then there's also the fact that forthcoming tax hikes will, in effect, chew up those cost of living mitigation measures. What's your take on that, therefore? Is it actually worth giving those one-off payments when they're going to be sucked up anyway later? Well, again, Zoe, it seems to me that to me is sort of a short-term, if not emotional response to the issue. Um, there are indeed uh, payments, as you said, especially uh, trying to target uh, uh, lower middle income uh, households or uh, certain uh, constituencies of, uh, of welfare um, uh, recipients. Again, in a very short-term perspective, where the preoccupation is a sudden or relatively sudden increase in the cost of living, you, and, and considering that there is an election forthcoming, you put the two things together, and, and this is not an unusual response from a government, not just this government. I, I guess that a similar pattern could be observed uh, in many other countries. In fact, there is a whole branch of, of, of economic and, and, and political research that talks about this type of political business cycle, if you want. So it, it's, not, uh, it's not an uncommon pattern. But I agree with you. The point is uh, how uh, useful, how impactful these measures are in, in a medium to long-term perspective. And the question, again, goes back to two things. First, what are we going to do more substantively in order to control inflation? And to me, that's more an answer that goes to, again, monetary policy. Uh, and second is, what are we going to do to ensure that uh, in the medium term, 
middle and lower income households or, or recipients of welfare have opportunities for um, to earn income and therefore what are we doing in order to sustain the long-term growth of the economy uh, and, and that's what I was saying before I think is a little bit missing sometimes you know we think about economic growth as a sort of sort of an evil thing, okay, the economy cannot grow forever. But in fact, from an economic perspective, uh, things are quite different. Economic growth is what, at the end of the day, derives prosperity. Of course, this growth has to be sustainable and has to be shared. Uh, so there is also the problem of sharing the benefits of growth. But without uh, a plan to sustain economic growth in the longer term, it is very difficult to produce the type of human development, the type of socioeconomic development that supports the welfare, particularly of the individuals and households at the lower end of the income distribution. So can we break down these competing pressures a little bit? It seems to me that we're kind of economically wedged right now. The government in the budget predicted that wages will apparently rise, although I know some doubt's been cast on that. But let's put on the table that the government expects wage growth to be above 3% annually over the next four years. Um, but then that also comes in an environment, as you say, of rising inflation and this huge debt problem that we have in a post-COVID environment. I'm just wondering how all of those things intersect when you're trying to increase wages to inject money into the economy and increase productivity and empower people to to work to their full capacity at the same time as we have fuel prices going up, pushing up inflation, house, house, house prices have been a problem, so you've got the potential issue of the Reserve Bank increasing interest rates, and then at the same time you've got this debt issue that, that is sort of hanging over us as a long-term problem. How do all of those things intersect and then how do you try to manage that where you enable people to have happy and productive lives at the same time as not allowing inflation to spike and the debt to get completely unwieldy. Well, Zoe, that's quite a list. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and look, uh, you're absolutely uh, correct. And, and, and this, in a sense, um, is a summary of what economics is about. Economics very often is about trade-offs. Uh, it is, uh, for instance, a, 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 there is, for instance, a clear trade-off between um, uh, uh, reducing unemployment and, uh, um, and increasing inflation. Uh, this has been observed uh, over the years in many countries. When the economy is sort of running uh, uh, well, when unemployment is going down, when, when, when you, you are in a phase of expansion, there is always a pressure on prices. Um, on the contrary, when you're going through a contraction or a recession, as we have seen at the time of COVID, then prices go down. So there are all these type of trade-offs that uh, a government, uh, together with a, a central bank, in this case the Reserve Bank of Australia, has to manage. And the way in which these trade-offs are managed, in my opinion, depends on whether we take a short-term perspective or a long-term perspective. Now, to go back to some of the points that you made, wages in Australia, as we all know, have been relatively flat for quite a long period of time. 
uh, and this has been an issue. Uh, now we, uh, what we should be looking at is the differential growth between wages and prices. So the fact that wages are expected to increase is not necessarily in itself a good news if this wage increase is completely absorbed by inflation, by the cost of, uh, by the cost of life. Uh, at the same time, a big push to wages is in itself a driver of inflation because as wages increase, cost of production increase, and therefore prices increase. That's why I say there is, and, and that's very important, and, and sometimes it is not really made it clear in the public debate here in Australia, there is a big role for the government in, in how to manage the economy, but there is also a big role for the Reserve Bank of Australia. And the Reserve Bank of Australia has the tools and the mandate to work on uh, uh, controlling inflation in the medium term. And that's what I expect that will happen. So I expect that the RBA will take care to some extent of the inflation issue in the medium term. In the short term, what I think is important is to, uh, first of all, uh, 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 make sure that uh, all the bottlenecks, all the constraints to, to the supply chains that are currently causing the, the, the spiking prices are, are addressed. Uh, obviously, not all of this is under the control of the Australian government. A lot of these constraints um, are part of the international, the global supply chains. But what we have to make sure is that we remove those constraints uh, to, to the supply side of the economy, which cause the spiking prices. At the same time, because unemployment has gone down, and unemployment has gone down, is relatively low, uh, the economy will produce an upward pressure on wages. And that's where we can have that type of increase in the real purchasing power of wages that we actually need. So by, by this, I mean that, you know, as we control prices and, and, and wages increase faster than the real purchasing power of, of families will increase. And that's what is going to drive uh, 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 recovery and welfare uh, in the shorter term. In the longer term, I, I'm sorry if I, if I sound as a broken record, all of this becomes secondary to uh, the identification and facilitation of those drivers of, of development, which I mentioned at the very beginning of our chat, mm. around innovation and sustainability. Uh, because that's what in, we need as an economy, as a society in the longer term, if we want to maintain you know, the standards of living that we have collectively achieved over the last decades. Yeah, so let's get into that a little bit. I mean, it occurs to me when you talk about supply chains, you know, well, the most obvious one right now is fuel, uh, which is something that's completely beyond our control and that, that may linger for some time. So if we were to push forward into this innovative environment that you're talking about, what might that look like? What sorts of things are you thinking of? That, that's really a great question, Zoe. Thank you. Because, uh, you know, in the past, often the mistake has been made, again, not just in Australia, I'm talking in general, uh, thinking that one can choose uh, a winner, uh, a sector of the economy that will be the winner, that will be the sector that uh, will produce uh, uh, the, the, the new technology, a sector that will produce the type of innovation that is at the root of economic growth. So what we have seen often is governments picking a sector and deciding to throw money into that sector, hoping that that sector or that industry or that region for that matter will be, you know, the, 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 the driver of, of, of the growth of the country. That usually never works. It never works because we don't have the information, we don't have the crystal ball 
to understand and decide which sector is actually going to generate the type of innovation that we need. So when I talk about innovation, I talk about a broader strategy whereby we have a government that is prepared and able to support new activities, new ideas, but truly new activities and truly new ideas across multiple sectors. Uh, so I'm talking about a program, if you want, to support entrepreneurship, which is different from small businesses. Uh, I'm talking about, again, entrepreneurship in, in terms of ability to invest and take, uh, uh, in a sense, a risk in, in, on a new idea or a new product or, or a new you know, production process. Um, so that type of innovation that comes from research and development, that comes from capital venture, that comes from higher education, um, uh, because innovation is essentially the ability to you know, have a, a new idea or a new discovery and bring it into uh, the economy, uh, make it a commercial in a sense. So it is that type of innovation. And, and you know, if, if you agree with my definition of innovation and you think about what I said, support to entrepreneurship, support to capital ventures, support to new ideas, support to R&D, and support to higher education, you don't find much in this budget. That seems to me to go against, without getting too political on this, the government's technology versus taxes agenda. Would we not expect a government that is focused in that manner, that has limited levers at its disposal in the environment that you've just described, to therefore be actively activating the kind of environment that you're talking about? And then why do we not see that? What's the, what's the roadblock? Well, that's a good point. I mean, uh, without uh, you know, going into the, 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 the detail of, of many statistics, we, we do know that, that Australia over the last probably 10 years or so has fallen behind in terms of, you know, as I said, uh, capital venture and, and R&D um, and all those type of uh, uh, activities that are the foundations of, of innovation. Um, I think that what has been missing um, is, is, is a good understanding of what innovation is about. Uh, as I said before, the government has spent a lot investing in physical infrastructure and in building things and, and uh, you know, building infrastructure is certainly important, but uh, the return on this investment depends on, on many uh, factors like, you know, the, 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 where the infrastructures are located and uh, what kind of, uh, you know, network is built around the infrastructure and so on and so forth. And, and it seems to me that this idea of building things has been dominant or the predominant uh, approach to any form of long-term development. And, and, and it's not enough. It's not enough. And in some cases, you know, the more you build and the less the return on what you're building, uh, because, you know, uh, if you don't develop other things, as we said before, the social infrastructure and, and, and the opportunities for entrepreneurship, then just building new physical infrastructure is not going to lead to any long-term uh, development opportunity. So to me, yeah. there is this uh, sort of distorted view of, 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 of what is the driver of, of innovation in, in the long term. So in that context, one of the areas of the budget that was viewed with some disappointment was lack of funding for climate-related projects and, and such. Another area that strikes me is the sort of gender equality piece 
Um, one of the disappointing aspects was the lack of introduction of super on paid parental leave, for example. Well, given that we've talked a bit about that, the soft and hard infrastructure and the sort of service economy aspect, what what do you think of the budget from a, an equality perspective and and how does that fit in terms of generating more productivity from our available workforce and enabling us to be as productive as we can be? Oh, look, I, uh, I think you're, you're making an important point here. Um, uh, first of all, you know, we often tend to think of sustainability from an environmental point of view, and, and that's certainly important, but sustainability is often broader than that. And, and, you know, the process of development is sustainable to the extent that, as I said before, uh, uh, the, the, the economic benefits are shared or the economic opportunities are shared uh, more evenly across the different uh, uh, groups, or socioeconomic groups in, in the economy. Um, uh, there can be uh, no uh, long-term development, in my view, uh, if uh, uh, both horizontal and vertical inequalities continue to uh, expand and you know, the, the differences become bigger and bigger. I, uh, I strongly believe that, uh, again, for a number of years, we, we have put sort of this issue of, 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 of equality aside, um, thinking, well, nobody has said this explicitly, but often I, I tend to characterize the thinking of, 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 uh, uh, of the thinking underlying some of the budgets uh, with, with the old idea of the trickle-down economics. Uh, it seems to me that, that, that often maybe again, not explicitly, but implicitly, there is this idea that, you know, if we get something going, then the benefits will trickle down to, to, to the rest of the economy, which again is clearly not supported by any type of evidence in Australia or elsewhere. Um, uh, so we need more active measures. We, we need more active measures in order to address gender equality. We, we need more active measures in terms of uh, uh, labor market policies to guarantee that, you know, as the labor market is booming in a sense, these booming opportunities are shared by everyone. Um, one other point that I wanted to make is that often um, uh, the debate on promoting entrepreneurship, and I go back to a point that I made before, is around reducing corporate tax rates. Again, uh, this seems to be missing the point a little bit. Uh, uh, the reduction in corporate tax rates is not in itself a mechanism to incentivate innovation and promote economic growth. Again, we have got the data to show that. So to sum all of this up, I think that uh, for a number of years we have relied on very simplistic views of, of the economy. And unfortunately, the economy, as you pointed out in the questions earlier on, is very complicated, it's full of trade-offs, and it takes a little bit more of a broader approach than what we have seen often in, in, in our budgets, including this one, I'm afraid. Fabrizio, I think we could talk all day about this, but I will let you go and get on with yours. Thank you so much for joining us on Find Your Voice. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. 
This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel. Level 1, 9 slash 214 Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria. 